Behold, the Lamb has come. But it's not just that he has come. It's that he is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, let us not forget, let us never forget that we celebrate in great anticipation. We don't just celebrate the past. We celebrate a future when Jesus is coming. I have a scripture memory verse for us for the month of December. It's going to be 1 John 2.28. Will you join with me in reciting 1 John 2.28? 1 John 2.28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. 1 John 2.28. We are anticipating, we are looking forward to, we continue in Christ knowing that Jesus is coming again. We're going to be in Micah 2 today. So Micah 2, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Micah 2, Micah can be a harder one to find. Um, so you may use your index. It's before Nahum, after Jonah. But Micah uh, and I think I said Micah 2. I meant Micah 5. We're going to start with verse 2. Micah chapter 5. Uh, Micah 5 2 is a common Christmas verse. And when we read it, you'll probably say, oh yeah, I've heard something like that before. We're going to dig into this just a little bit here. Because what I want you to see in Ma Micah chapter 5 is that all creation is desperately longing for God's redeeming work. All creation desperately longs for God's redeeming work. And it's only realized through the shepherd, the great shepherd, the true shepherd, Jesus Christ. He alone can bring true peace by rooting out evil and redeeming our world. That's what we're looking for is Jesus who is coming again to redeem our world, to fix the problems in the world. I want to give you just a little bit of a background about Micah, Micah as a writer. So Micah wrote about the same time as Isaiah. Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries of each other. They may have known each other. We don't know. But they wrote it about the same time, uh, the time when the nation of Israel, which was the northern ten tribes, were being conquered by the Assyrians, and the empire of Babylon was beginning to rise and become a major player on the world scene. For those of you who uh, enjoy puns, I know there are some of you out there. I've played games with you that involve puns. For those of you that enjoy puns, Micah 1 in the Hebrew is full of puns. So if you are really brave, you could go you know, find some Hebrew and find it maybe alliterated or, uh, so that you don't have to read the Hebrew, but it's full of puns. We're not going to be in Micah 1, though. The message of Micah is an interesting message. You see, Micah attacks world issues that were affecting the nation of Judah. The world issues that were affecting the nation of Judah was corruption, abuse of power. Micah attacks dishonest commercial practices in the nation of Judah. He goes after greedy priests who were consuming everything. Micah goes after the wealthy, for their greed. He attacks leaders who hate what's good and lift up what's evil. 
Micah holds Judah's leaders responsible for the state of affairs in the nation of Judah, and he compares their practices to cannibalism. That's Micah. That's what Micah is writing about, is a nation that has gone so far into corruption, so far into greed, so far into abuse, that they no longer recognize what's good and instead elevate what is evil. There's some irony, though, in the book of Micah. Whereas most prophets call on the people to repent, Micah doesn't. Micah doesn't call on the people to repent. Instead, Micah says, these problems cannot be solved by mere men. God is the only one that can solve the corruption in the nation of Judah. It's only by God's Messiah that Judah can realize true peace. It's only by God's Messiah that the problems of Judah can be solved. And so when we read Micah 5.2, understand we are talking about not just the Savior of our sins, but the Redeemer of the world, the one who solves the problems of evil. So let's read Micah 5.2. And we'll continue on all the way through, verse, through the end of the chapter. Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Judah will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and will cast, uh, and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles. When I demolish your cities, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. All right, a hard passage, but let's try to make sense of it. So I want you to imagine with me, in order to understand prophecy, uh, a drive that Emily and I often make back to Colorado. So when we're driving to Colorado, uh, when we get close uh, inside the, the state of Colorado, when we get close to Denver, you begin to see the outline of something on the horizon. It looks sort of like a wall. It looks like it only has two dimensions. 
horizontal and vertical. As you get closer, you begin to see structures and peaks, but it still looks two-dimensional, vertical and horizontal. In fact, until you get to about 15 miles outside of the Rocky Mountains, they really look flat. And as you get closer and closer and closer, they begin to take shape and you begin to see, oh, this isn't just a wall. In fact, this is hundreds of miles deep. And this peak that looked like it was right next to this peak is actually about 100 miles apart. And there's all these valleys and this structure in between. This is how prophecy in the Old Testament worked. As the prophets wrote, they were looking from a distance, thousands of years out. And what looked to them like it was one event followed by another event, in fact, could be one event followed by thousands of years followed by another event. It was like looking at the mountain. And so as we read in Micah 5, I want you to understand that Jesus did come. He was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, smallest among the nations. But he is coming again. Micah 5, 3 and on are still yet to come. And that is the true shepherd who solves the problems of the world. So Micah 5.3, my first point, is that we need, we desperately need the true shepherd to represent God. Israel was longing for a Messiah, a king, God's ruler on the throne. You see, what is happening is that the Messiah came. He was born as a baby. He solved our sin problem by dying on the cross. That if we only accept him as our savior, our personal sin is paid for. But he did not sit on the throne yet. He has not solved the problem of evil in the world yet. See, God is working towards a point when he will fully establish his kingdom with his representative, Jesus Christ, on the throne. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 9. We're going to be in Isaiah just a little bit because it's hard to talk about prophecies about Jesus without turning to Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And what I want you to see is what God is working towards, the point that God is working towards with Messiah, starting in verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Question for you. What job was Adam given right after creation? To tend the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth. How was Adam made? Adam was made in God's image. Let me give you just a little theology here. Being made in God's image was being God's representative. Adam was given a actually pretty hard job, represent God to creation. 
That was Adam's responsibility. Was Adam successful? No. Not even close, right? He failed right away. He failed to represent God to creation. So God instituted a next stage. And in Exodus 19, he asked Israel, will you be a kingdom of priests and represent God to the nations? Israel failed. You see, nobody can represent God effectively, truly, except Jesus. Jesus is God's representative, God's rightful ruler, the one as being born as a child, but having the right to rule over the world. His character is described as perfect, wonderful, except the mighty God. The Messiah would be the mighty God, only God himself, the everlasting father. The idea there is eternality. God's representative, his perfect representative, is eternal. The prince of peace. The one who can zealously represent God. God is working towards a point when he will establish his kingdom with his representative on the throne, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61 tells us that God's representative is the only one who truly represents God's justice. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. And we're going to just look at verses 1 through 3 here. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Isaiah 61 is, I think, one of the most fascinating passages, and my reason is because Jesus himself quotes from Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4. So picture with me, after Jesus begins his ministry, Jesus enters the synagogue, and he's handed the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, and he's told to read from it. Jesus picks chapter 61. They didn't have the same chapter divisions that we have now, but he picks chapter 61 and he reads, but he doesn't read all of verses 1 through 3. He stops halfway through in, chapter, in verse 2. He stops at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right there in the middle of that sentence, Jesus closes the scroll and says, Today, this is fulfilled among you. What's interesting is that's not the whole prophecy. Jesus himself is actually right there in Luke 4 saying, we're going to get through half of this. There's still more to come. There is still more to come. And look at what is still to come. Yes, in verses 1 and 2, Jesus did proclaim the gospel, the good news of salvation to the poor. You don't have to earn your way to heaven. 
Jesus proclaimed freedom to captives, those who are held captive from sin. He proclaimed the Lord's favor, that God himself has reached down to earth to save sinners. But Jesus has not yet brought the day of vengeance of God on evil. He's not provided complete comfort to those who mourn yet. He has not established his kingdom yet. There is more to come. Jesus is offering us more. God's representative is the only one who can truly represent God's justice, who will shove evil out. So let me give you an action step. We've been sort of all over the place in Micah, so let me give you an action step. Take a second and take inventory of what Christ has accomplished and what he will still accomplish. So let's do this together. What has been accomplished? Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, paying the penalty for personal sin, your personal sins. If you accept Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sin, you are counted as righteous. He rose again after three days, proving that he had power over sin. He defeated sin at that moment and gave us freedom from sin. We no longer have to sin. It's no longer fundamental to us. He gave us the freedom from sin. But Jesus has not solved all the world's problems yet. He has not eliminated sin from the world yet. He has not redeemed everything that is broken. He's not set the captives free completely yet. There is more to come. As we celebrate Christmas, I want you to celebrate knowing that there is more to come. Jesus is coming again, and there is a great hope, a great expectation. Let's continue back in Micah. And my point coming out of verse 4, if you look at verse 4, is that we need the true shepherd to care for us. Micah 5 verse 4 is about the shepherd caring for his flock. Emily and I, back in 2019, took a trip to China, and we had the opportunity to go to a, a variety of different places. But one of the things that's really unique in China is anytime you walk into a large public building, like a mall or a business suite, there is a gigantic, and I, I mean like, think Memorial Stadium, you know, Jumbotron, there is a gigantic picture of Xi Jinping looking over the entrance. It is communicating something. It is communicating the idea that Xi Jinping is watching you. Okay? Xi Jinping does not care for those people. He might be watching or having his people watch, but he's not caring for those people. No matter how hard he tries to convince them, he is. Jesus Christ, the true shepherd, is watching us and cares for us. The true shepherd stands and shepherds, in verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock. Jesus Christ will reign and will care over each and every one of us. Remember Micah's problem. 
with Judah. He said, corrupt leaders are like cannibals, eating everything in their sight and destroying your nation. In contrast to the corrupt leaders that you are dealing with, Jesus will shepherd in justice and true care. How is he going to do that? Continuing in verse 4, because the true shepherd draws on the Lord for strength. Remember, we all fail to represent God. Adam failed. Israel failed. We fail. The true shepherd draws on the strength of Yahweh, being himself part of the Trinity, equal with God. In Isaiah 11, Jesus talked about or prophesied, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of the counsel of the Lord. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on the Messiah. The true shepherd operates in the strength of the Lord. But it's more than just operating in the strength of the Lord. The true shepherd, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, submits to God the Father. So here's an a interesting theological idea. We have the Trinity. In the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three equally God. All three having individuality, but being fully God and fully equally God. God the Son submits to God the Father in full and total submission. The true shepherd fully submits to God the Father. And what the result of that is, is that the true shepherd is the one who's able to keep his people secure. The true shepherd is the only one that can give us security in life. So, let me give you an action step. As we prepare for Christmas, as we anticipate Christmas, we need to recognize that the true shepherd, recognize the true shepherd is Jesus. And make sure you're turning to the true shepherd for your care and provision. There are all sorts of places we can turn for care and provision. Turn to the true shepherd, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, for your care and provision. In verses 5 through 9, what I see is that the true shepherd is the only way to enjoy true peace. We need the true shepherd to enjoy true peace. The word peace is a Hebrew word that you have probably heard before, shalom. The word shalom means a lot more than we give it credit for. Shalom is not merely the absence of violence. If you hear about peace, if somebody tells you, you know, oh, there's a peace treaty, or we finally have some peace and quiet, what generally you mean is the absence of violence or ruckus or, you know, a disturbance, something that you don't like. The absence of that is what we often think of as meaning peace. That is not what shalom means. Shalom means, yes, it does include that, but it is so much more. The true shepherd brings shalom. Only the true shepherd can provide shalom. That's in verses 5 and 6. 
So let me tell you a little bit about the word shalom. The word shalom is well-being, prosperity, comfort, a lack of concern. So how do I know that right now today we don't have shalom? Because I bet your keys are in your pocket and not out in the ignition. Okay? We don't yet have true peace. There are not bombers flying overhead that I know of right now. But that doesn't mean that we have peace. We are waiting in anticipation for a day when there is true peace on earth. And that's what the true shepherd brings. For the Israelites, they also did not have peace at this time, or the, the people of Judah. The Assyrian Empire had come in and conquered the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes. They had also marched into Judah and ravished the land of Judah. They had marched on Jerusalem, besieged Jerusalem, and God had delivered the city of Jerusalem, but did not leave Judah untouched. They had in very, a very strong way seen war. It was on their doorstep. And to that, Isaiah says in verse 5, and he, who's he? The Messiah. He will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land, because that was a very real possibility, it had happened, and marched through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight commanders. Seven is the picture of perfection in the Old Testament. What they're saying is we will have everything we could ever need to care for us. We won't have to worry. We'll have no concern. Why? Because Messiah is the only one who can bring real peace. In verses 7 through 9, what we see is that the true shepherd, Messiah, doesn't just bring peace, but he actually enables his own people to act. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. God's people in Messiah's kingdom will be a blessing on others. That's the kingdom that we look forward to, is a kingdom where God's people are a blessing on everybody else. Ultimately, this part of the passage is about shalom. The true shepherd is the only way to enjoy true peace. There is coming a day when we will enjoy peace. So let me give you an action step. Check yourself. In whom are you trusting for your peace? Are you trusting a government? Are you trusting another individual? Those things are useful, but they are not ever going to provide you true peace. The only source of true peace is Jesus Christ. Finally, in verses 10 through 15, what I see is that we need the true shepherd to root out evil from our world. We live in a world where evil reigns. And we should be appalled when we see it. So I, I was thinking through an example of, have you ever had a, like what I would call a righteous indignation towards something that's evil or that's bad or you just can't believe it happened? Bad sportsmanship is the one that gets me. So back a, a number of years ago, um, there was a, 
It was during a Broncos game, and the Broncos were responsible for the bad sportsmanship. I was not happy at all. Uh, Michael Crabtree had this habit of wearing a necklace during football games. I don't know why he chose to wear a necklace during a football game, but he'd wear a necklace during a, a football game. And the Broncos decided that they were going to steal the necklace during the football game. And Aqib Tlaib went up and literally yanked the necklace off of Michael Crabtree in the middle of the game. I was mad. I was really mad. You're playing football. Knock it off. It was a righteous anger at what I perceive to be an evil. We live in a world where people do bad things. The true shepherd roots out evil from the world. How? Look at verses 10 and 11. The true shepherd removes our dependence on things that we really can't trust in. So this is, remember, Micah speaking to the nation of Judah. says, in that day, when the true shepherd takes his throne, in that day, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. Now, if I'm in Judah and I see the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, and you tell me that the king's going to come and he's going to wipe out your military. What? Why? Because we trust in the wrong things. The true shepherd removes our dependence on things that we really shouldn't be trusting in in the first place. Jesus is coming again, and when he does, he's going to take away the things that we shouldn't be trusting in. And that's going to be a good thing, even if it doesn't feel so right now. The true shepherd, though, does more than just remove those things we shouldn't trust in. He casts out evil itself. In verse 12, it says, I will destroy your witchcraft. We have a fascination with the occult in our society. Just go to the movies at the beginning of October and watch the previews. We do. The true shepherd will root evil out of our society. Beyond that, the true shepherd will destroy anything that would become a false god. That's what's going on in verses 12, or sorry, uh, 13 and 14. It says, I will destroy your idols. We all have idols. And your sacred stones from among you, things that we worship that we have no business worshiping. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles. Those were uh, another form of idolatry. They worshiped the goddess Asherah at times. God says the true shepherd will root out evil by destroying the false gods. Verse 15 tells me that the true shepherd will rule absolutely. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Now you read that, and in our modern society, that probably sounds harsh. Okay? So let me rephrase this. The person who breaks into your house in the middle of the night to kidnap your children will be destroyed. That feels probably a little bit better. Okay? We tend to not realize the severity of sin. God will destroy sin. The time is coming when God will eliminate sin just as a father would protect his child with everything he has, God protects his people. He will take vengeance and anger and wrath 
on the nations that don't obey, on the nations that would destroy his kingdom. The time is coming when God is going to send Jesus again to set up that kingdom. So our action step today, as we move towards Christmas, take time to consider exactly how Jesus fulfills your deepest need. Christmas can actually be a very hard time emotionally. It reminds us of the brokenness of the world, whether that's sickness, people we've lost, things that we haven't had. For many people, on one hand, you've got the joy of Christmas, and we put on our fake happy faces because that's what we're supposed to do. But deep down, we're hurting because we live in a broken world. Consider exactly how Jesus fulfills your deepest needs and his kingdom is coming. He is going to right the wrongs. He is going to restore the shalom that God originally intended Adam to spread on the entire earth. The day is coming when God does exactly what Adam was supposed to do. As Jesus represents God by establishing his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, as we look forward to December 25th, a day when we will celebrate Christ's birth, I pray that we would also look forward to that future day when Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom a kingdom in which the wrongs are done away with, in which evil is rooted out, where the true shepherd sits on the throne and cares for his flock in a way that is beyond anything we can imagine because we have no leader like Jesus. A day when we can enjoy shalom, true peace, true comfort, true prosperity. Father, I thank you that you are not finished yet. This is just the beginning. And the day is coming when you are going to establish your kingdom. And I pray that as we celebrate Christmas, we would look forward to the completion of what you started over 2,000 years ago by sending Jesus. I pray that we would joyfully delight knowing that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.